Hello and welcome to another edition of Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things, a podcast where I look at those people who are doing really exciting work that's either kind of shifting their sector on, making the world a better place, or um, or kind of shifting them on in many, many ways. This is a really interesting one. I'm talking to Duncan from um, Dalston Drinks um, about, about alternative soft drinks, I guess. And... Um, you may have tried Dalston, you, you may not. It's a beautiful, beautiful range of drinks. Their Cherry Aid is um, oh, it's just history in a can. It's really, really reminiscent of my sort of 1970s childhood. And I think that's the, that's the thing about taste. It's the fastest time machine that there is. And um, it's a really lovely conversation. And as ever with me, um, we very rarely talk about the drinks. We talk about everything else. And there's some really interesting little uh, bits that fall out of it around the kind of the pursuit of your own dream and what gets in in your way in terms of um, growing a business. Um, And also, you know, Duncan talks about how he would do things differently um, if he did it again which is really interesting. And I'm always fascinated by what makes the person the person. So we, we delve into a bit of that. So pin your ears back, have a listen. It's relatively short, nice, simple, sort of 25 minutes, I think. Um, uh, in fact, it'd be really good to get some feedback on that because some, some of them recently, um, sorry, my dog's moaning and groaning. Um, some of them recently have gone on um, longer than that. I, I've just let them go. Um, I don't know what the ultimate time is for you. Um, great to have some feedback on that. I try and aim for 30 minutes, but sometimes sometimes we go on. Um, be great to, to have some kind of insight back. So yeah, look, enjoy it. It's a great, great conversation. Brilliant man, lovely drinks. Thank you. So we'll start with that opening and then I'll So I'm sat in the um, offices of Dalston Sodas um, and uh, brilliant drinks. I guess you've probably tried them. Cherry A is something like I've never had before. Um, and um, I'm going to record a little podcast. So tell me who you are and what you do. My name is Duncan O'Brien. Uh, I used to be a chef and I'm now the founder of uh, Dalston Soda Company which I've been running for six long years. Um, yeah. Six long years? It's been hard work. Six, I, yeah, I think building any business is hard work, right? Yeah. Um, uh, founders love uh, talking about the, the hardships, um, and I have certainly watched people do it uh, a lot uh, quicker and seemingly <coughs> more effortlessly, um, uh, seemingly effortlessly in comparison. Um, I started the business with a £300 payday loan, um, and... Um, uh, we made everything by hand for years. We built two factories in London, um, and it was only when I raised sort of first uh, sort of round of investment that you know, shareholders politely tapped me on the shoulder and said, "That's not really how you build a drinks business." It's, we we used to go to the market, buy fresh produce, take it back to our factory, process it, take it, grind it down, mix it up, juice lemons, oranges, blend our drinks in equipment that we'd sort of designed and then had fabricated. Um, pasteurize it by hand, label it by hand, box it, deliver it in our own van, um, and you can get so far with that. But yeah. but but really, uh, when you learn more about the drinks industry, it's a it's a mature market with lots of distributors, large customers. You have to do very large volume. You can't build that all yourself, um, but you can learn a lot in building it yourself. <coughs> so. That's fascinating. So, you were a chef before. 
I was a chef. I um I, I studied anthropology in London. I'm from Scotland originally, and um after graduating it was 2006. So um everyone's still sort of a bit pie eyed, and I hadn't I'm loving my degree. Uh, hadn't thought about what to do next. So I graduated and suddenly like, ah, um, what do I do? And I took a job in the city working for a business intelligence company because it was looking at emerging markets, um, So which was then Brazil, Russia, India, China. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I get to you know continue my curiosity about what's going on in the world. The bricks. Um, but instead I was trying to sell that information to hedge fund managers who did not want to talk to a 21-year-old um, recent graduate um, so I didn't last very long. I worked in the city for about a year and a half, and then I fled London um, after one particularly bad night, and um, went back to Scotland. I was living with my parents for two weeks before I thought, what on earth am I doing? This is not what I intended. And um, I was looking, uh, looking at two jobs, and one was like a financial writer position with this firm called Bailey Gifford, um, and the other one was to be a bartender on a train, a hotel train called the Royal Scotsman, which yeah. was run by the Orient Express Hotels Company. Um, and I just thought, well, that looks a bit random. You live on board, you work on board. And I sort of fancied that slightly sort of monk-like, just a, just a different type of existence. Yeah, there's more stories you can get from there than the other option, I agree. Yes. Um, and I was on the train as the bartender serving sort of the great and the good from all around the world. Uh, when there's beautiful, beautiful train routes through Scotland and fantastic food. And um, uh, they had a problem in the kitchen. So they had three chefs and the sous chef. Um, uh, the sous chef left after a while um, and they would try and get replacement chefs in uh, to, to do the sort of donkey work in the kitchen or to, to do the work in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, but it was quite hard. It was just a challenging environment. Um, very high pressure chefing, best of Scottish food. Actually, the, the chef that I worked on, ended up working under, he had been trained by Andrew Fairley, who, who, yeah. who, who, who died just the other week, a great Scottish chef that led a generation of uh, sort of fantastic chefs under him in Scotland, yeah. uh, including likes of sort of Tom Kitchen, people who've really sort of revolutionized Scottish food, I think. Um, so anyway, they, they, um, they would get these replacement chefs on, and then in the middle of a trip, um, the call would go up amongst the stewards that we'd lost another chef, and you'd poke your head out the window, and there'd be a guy in his whites running down a train platform in the middle of nowhere, literally running away from the from the train because it was quite challenging work. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and um, and that has some little to do with like kitchen culture, that particular sort of high end kitchen culture, but it also has to do just with the, the conditions on the train um, uh, and the demands of the job. But um, they'd have to take a steward in to cover that position, and one one day they picked me, like Duncan, get in the kitchen peeled potatoes etc I loved it really really loved it um, and I got on quite well with the chefs uh, and they at the end of the trip I said if you ever need to take somebody else um, please pick me and they said keep your whites on we'll train you up um, and I thought they were joking so I went and put my waistcoat back on and came back up and they grabbed me and said what are you doing get your whites on get in the kitchen get on that and that was my start of my baptism of fire in the food and drink industry a, a very privileged area because you don't generally you're not generally able to as a sort of starter chef able to go into sort of one of the best kitchens in the country and learn from guys like Ian Murray the head chef yeah. that I had who had a, um, a sort of incredible passion for his food and, a, and, a, and was the chef that I worked under was the most I mean that it was mainly about working for him he was the first guy I worked for that I really sort of really respected and um, you sort of become uh, sort of a secondary parent, like you become sort of part, like you're you're their hands, of course. You know? um, 
uh, and also the what I loved about the work was the connection with the connection with your labor right there's no division of labor there's not so much if you've done a good job you know about it yeah. if you've done a bad job you know about it um, instantly so, instantly and I love working my hands I had too much energy for sitting in an office so I can't see you sat in an office <clears throat> I'm terrible at it that's why I'm sort of uh, waiting to be discovered uh, yeah I'm, I really like that. Yeah. waiting to be discovered <laughs> Just, people love what you do people people really when I when, when we first met and I took a tin of the well, he, I think you gave me four tins or six tins. And um, I Instagrammed them, and the love that came flying in over the social media waves, for, particularly for the Cherry Aid, I have to say, was, was actually deafening, broadly irritating that they were using my feed to tell you how great you were. I, it's all about me, it's my feed. <laughs> Not at all. It was, it was quite incredible. Thanks for, thanks for posting it. It's, um, that... that um yeah, that drink really, um, really won us a lot of fans. I think last yeah. year, um, we only launched it last year, and it's quickly become one of our best sellers. It, it, I, I, I don't buy soft drinks very often. I buy them. I buy a cola if I'm driving tired. Occasionally buy. Well, I was like, don't you? Know, I can't occasionally buy Purdy's for some reason, but it's too sweet for me. Um, and the only other one I'll buy is yours. It's really good. Thanks. It's really, really good. Um, you mentioned loads of things there that I want to have a little, little pick on. Um, firstly, and feel free not to answer this, tell me about the disastrous night in London. Ha! <clears throat> you don't have to. Have you heard of the Bang Face Nights? <laughs> no. It's a club night um, with a lot of electronic dance music. Um, really good fun. Really good fun. It was at one of those, uh, it was with a bunch of old friends, but I was going through a breakup, and sometimes I think when you're going through a breakup, you can try and sort of party it out, and try yeah. and uh, try and go and have lots of fun, but underneath that, you're probably pretty miserable. So I think I had a load of fun, and then suddenly I realised I wasn't very happy. And also, at that point, I was, I was uh, leaving, I'd, I'd, I'd very recently been offered... Um, uh, uh, a job at a company that I was temping at, yeah. uh, which was a pensions investments consultancy, right. and um, they were lovely people. The work was quite, quite interesting because I was working on emerging market stuff again. They'd sort of seen what I'd done previously, and they're like, "Oh, we'll stick you in that area." Um, and uh, they'd offered me a job, and the last thing they said in the interview was, "We just don't know if this is what you really want to do." And I said, "I don't think it's. I don't know if it's really what I want to do either." So I could just hear like the coffin lid slamming, boom, Duncan O'Brien, he was a pensions investments consultant. And it just didn't seem, it didn't quite gel with the, the sort of, um, uh, the, the, the curiosity you get from studying something like anthropology. You're just interested in the world and what's going on. And you get to study sort of spirit possession and uh, the Agoria Cetics in, um, uh, what's the city in India? Varanasi, and it just didn't seem quite right. So I was going through a bunch of stuff, yeah. professionally uh, and personally. It wasn't really working out, and I had a big night out, and then went into a massive tailspin, and then fled the country. But it's it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you're right. You know, you can prop yourself up so much. You can put on so many masks. You can put a little bit of veneer or a little bit of you know makeup on equivalent, um, and. 
then you realise it's all fruitless and, and, and you're actually hollow inside. So it, it's a, the temptation is to bluster through it. Actually, the hardest thing is to yield to it. I think your 20s is a hard time for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, I was at a party the other week and I was chatting to a guy and he was, I'm 34 now, he was 24. And this guy, he was really, you know, he studied fashion, he wasn't sure where he was going, he was doing a job he hated. He was, you know, we were talking about the, the, the ups and downs and the uncertainties. And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do at that age. It took me until about 26, 27 yeah. Uh, to really have an idea of where I wanted to go and then I realised to get there it was going to take me a long time sure. so I think yeah there's a lot of pressure put on young people in their 20s and I think they need more um, more advice that it's okay to feel like overwhelmed a bit um, and um, and it's okay uh, yeah. to change direction yeah no. you know we, we, the people that give us the, that our advice about careers are generally still our parents Mm. who have grown up in a different era yep. where you didn't dick around in careers. I was chatting to someone on the train yesterday about someone we both know, a common person, right? And um, he said about his CV, yeah, well, he's one of those people that's only there four years and then gone, and there four years and then gone. As if it was something that, that you were running because you weren't very good, rather than a way of living, ra- rather than... Being okay with change, yep. and, and I, I mean, I just defended this this person because I like him, and actually, I, I won't take any shit. Um, and it's okay for us to change our mind. And in, in other cultures, in Australia and America, um, it, it's okay to play. And in India, you change your mind, you do different things. It's not, it's not a problem. Here, it's a sign of a kind of like early midlife crisis if, if you do that. Which is it's, it's strange, isn't it? I've done about thirty different jobs in my life. I've done all sorts of things um, all over the world, and. Yeah, it is. It is sort of. It's. It is frowned on, even as labor relations and the whole way that people work with the gig economy are changing massively, and the side hustle, which you've been reading about a lot recently. But work is really important, and it's important to get young people into um, jobs and work experience. One of the things I'm proud of at Dalston's is we uh, we draw, we were one of the first um, businesses involved in a project called the Hackney One Hundred. Which got a hundred um, school school ages like sixteen year olds at um, Hackney Secondary Schools into paid work placements, um, and we had a guy called Joris who came for the six months of the internship, and then he stayed with us, working with us for two years part time in the same capacity afterwards. And he um, at one point was the best paid person in the company because it was a living wage project. And at that point in our genesis, so it was pre uh, our first investment round, we were all on pretty low money. Yeah. Um, we're like, all right, so he's on, <laughs> he's on living wage, is he? Of course. And you know, now we've been a living wage employer for, uh, for years now, but um, it, we're still in touch. Um, he got a, job, got a job reference request through from his employer the other day. Uh, great kid. Um, and you could see that like when we were interviewing him, we picked him because he was like, reasonably confident but he's quite quiet in fact work experience for young people develops their communication abilities it develops their confidence yeah you know, like it gives them the ability to talk to lots of different people which is um and can be can be a little bit lacking um uh, without that um without that kind of experience so yeah it's interesting so um you don't sound like you grew up in Scotland. No, but there's all sorts of accents in Scotland. I know, appreciate it. And I hear that a lot. I, no, I <laughs> like, see So tell me about growing up in Scotland. Whereabouts and... Um, all right. So, so you ba- basically, my theory is you sound like who you grew up around. 
yeah. uh, and I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So cows, trees, and fields, not very many. Like the nearest house was uh, down the road, and it was three nuns uh, called the Poor Clares uh, for that particular order. Um, I grew I thought up. They were all called Claire for a minute, though. I moved around a lot growing up, so lived in four different houses, nowhere for longer than sort of six, seven years. Um, but in very beautiful places. Um, yeah. The last one was called Humby, uh, mostly East Lothian in Scotland. Um, and yeah, I sound like my parents. My dad's Irish English. My mum was uh, my mum was born in Nigeria to sort of Scottish and English parents, uh, but grew up in Scotland. Um, but yeah, countryside Scotland. Uh, so when I got to university, the opportunity to go to university, I wanted to go to the biggest place possible. So that was London. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, Scotland is a very beautiful country. What did your um, average weekend look like? Oof. <clears throat> Depends on what age. I worked from about age 14, so um, as soon as uh, we moved to this place called Humby, my mum marched down to the local business, which was a corporate entertainment company, that did all sorts of things. One of them was taking lawyers from Edinburgh and doing uh, shotgun shooting days, oh, yeah. clay pigeon shooting days with them. And my job was to, my first job was to sit in a small tin shed uh, with a, what's called a trap, which is basically a, 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 a device which has a spring and two metal arms on it, which you cock by pulling the top, pulling it right down to the bottom against the action of the spring, and then you load one of the clays onto it. And then when you hear pull, you press the trigger and the clay flies up into the air, almost taking your arm off if you have it in the wrong place. And then the lawyer, uh, who's paying vast amount of money to come and do this, it's, well, they have a lot of stag parties and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I've done um, it. Uh, will blast the clay out of the air, or if he screws up, he'll shoot the tin shed that I'm sitting in. Um, really? It's perfectly safe. Uh, perfectly safe. But um, that was one of my first jobs, and that was absolutely great fun. I absolutely loved those uh, those people <coughs> and that company, and learned a lot there, uh, including how to smoke and drink, unfortunately. That comes with the territory there, doesn't it, with lawyers? No, I mean, with them, that kind of outlaw <laughs> well, it, it comes with chefs as well, unfortunately. Yeah. The amount of chefs I know that smoke is ridiculous. Yeah. It, it's, 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 I passed someone this morning walking here, um, smoking as he walked, and, the, and I had to kind of double take it. He's an older guy, he must have been oh, 50, he must have been 56, 57, um, but he looked ill. He looked like he was sucking not the life into him, but the life out of him. Yeah. Um, so you clay pigeon did your stuff, clay pigeon in the mornings or on a Saturday? What, what, what did yeah, Saturday mornings? Like? I worked in the village shop as well um, on Saturday, Sunday mornings. Um, but social life in the countryside, uh, not great. No. Um, when I was sort of 10, 12, we used to rag around on little 50cc motorbikes uh, with a guy called James Brown down the road. His dad was a coal miner and he got that awful black lung, basically. Yeah. Um, so he'd been off work for a long time, but he was my, my one friend in that place in Penn Caitlin. And we used to just have great fun playing in the woods and building fires. James Brown. He was called James Brown, yeah. You still see him? Good guy. No, oh, I saw him a few years ago, yeah, just by chance. Great to see him. Um, you should reach out to him more. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. James Brown's in the news at the moment. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it was, it was all quite rural, wholesome fires and, uh, fires and uh, motorbikes and biking around and that sort of thing. Um, and then when you hit the age of drinking alcohol, which in Scotland is sort of, 15, 16, yeah. you then basically, you're, you're just going, you're just trying to get into pubs in, uh, in, in Edinburgh, so we do that quite often. And, um, yeah. yeah. Edinburgh rather than Glasgow? Well, if people would say, if, like, where's the best place to go out in Edinburgh, 
Glasgow is the answer. Mm. So Glasgow for gigs. So we go up to Glasgow to go to. It's one of my favourite cities. Yeah. Uh, it's fantastic. It I mean, I love Edinburgh as well. Yeah. I love Dundee, weirdly, but um, Glasgow, oh, incredible. So then, then you left. You, this sounds idyllic, you know. You 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 you've just painted a picture that could be from any decade in the last hundred years, right? Like growing up in that place would have been doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Clay pigeon shooting, chasing rabbits, throwing stones at. Yeah whatever and and fires and cooking and i can i, I love it and i'm jealous I, I had a bit of it but not as much of it and then you, you you arrive in london that must have been like flash bang culture yeah. shock <clears throat> yeah it was the end of the we just caught the end of like the drum and bass scene and the end of the squat party scene so yeah was, i came to london age sort of 17 18 and we met a bunch of these london kids uh some of whom have been catching up with recently um, and they would take us to the squat parties, so the free parties, so which were just sort of dying out, but they were still around at that point. Yeah. Um, and it was that, and going to fabric and listening to drum and bass and dancing around. So yeah. the first year was fantastic, yeah. just great fun. And then sort of the end of that, I was like, ooh, this course I'm doing is actually pretty interesting, I'd better do some work. And then just got very involved in my degree. Um, I'll come on to the course in a minute, because it is it's fascinating. Drum and bass, right? Mm. Yeah, help me out here. I, I, a good friend of mine on Instagram, her husband is a really famous drum and bass DJ. Mm. One of the couple. I can't. I'm gonna. I'll tell you, but off, mm. off, off audio. And um, I had to listen to his playlists, and um, and he's really talented. But I keep wanting to fall over when I'm dancing to it. Like there's there there is no. I'm saying like that. When you but when you're 18, like your bones are more flexible. Maybe. You got. It just you know. it's like a car. It's like car alarms going off and people rowing over the top of it. I can't see it, but I shouldn't because I'm uh, old, right? Not, li- not listen to the right stuff. Possibly. I'll send you, share, some, I'll share, send you some links. Share yeah. me a playlist, yeah, please. Yeah. Um, musically, where did you go to after drum and bass? Did you go into grime? Um, good question. Probably more into tech. So after I graduated, one of my best mates had just moved back to Glasgow, actually. He went off to Berlin and lived in Berlin for 10 years. And when I'd taken the job on the Royal Scotsman, I used to, on the Royal Scotsman, you'd work for like seven days, 13 days, 15 days in a row, and then you'd get like three or four days off. Yeah. So on those three or four days off, I'd get immediately on a plane, go to Berlin, and we'd just go out to like Berkheim and German Techno. German Techno. So yeah, that's Star Bar and uh, Watergate, and yeah, just still the old waterfront. Um, yeah. So there was a good couple of years of that, a few years of that, and got quite into, yeah, um, Detroit Techno, old house stuff. Um, Chicago House. Um, well, I do love, yeah, I love, I love a bit of house music, that. basically. Give me a bit of camp piano, and mm. I am, my arms are in the yeah. air. No, great soulful music, like, yeah. and disco, yeah. Incredible, so, so I'm, I'm getting this image, <coughs> this country kid, who is not really a country kid, he's actually um, an urban dancer, and um, he hits London, and does archaeology. Anthropology. Anthropology. Thank mm. you. I, mm. I misheard you earlier. Sorry, anthropology. Sorry, people. So what was it about anthropology that made you go, oh, this is your word. This is really interesting. I need to do some work. Um, I think it was probably a couple of our lecturers and just the subject matter. Like <clears throat> when we started, and I think it's probably the case for a lot of students, a lot of our, my course mates and I really kind of fought with the, we fought with the material. We're just like, what is this? Why on earth we, we what is this stuff um, and then after a year you're subjected to enough of it you start to build up these sort of interconnected pictures I mean the the starting tenet of um, 
a lot of anthropology is um, by Max Weber, who said, man is an animal suspended in webs of meaning he himself has created. And you should probably update to that, to person. I can't can't figure out how to like gender neutralize that uh, that statement, but it's a good one, I think. Man is an animal suspended in webs of meaning he himself has created. Yeah, Yeah. it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant phrase and I've heard it, but I've never, it's never been, I've never filed it away anywhere, which I'm, and I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do that after this. Um, so, what did you hope to do with your degree afterwards? Oh, I had no idea, no idea whatsoever. I mean, I used to want to be a journalist, so I, I worked as a journalist in Phnom Penh. I, I did an internship on a newspaper called the Phnom Penh Post wow. in Cambodia in two thousand um, and four over the summer there. Because um, so I thought I wanted to be a journalist, but I was looking at the industry and what was going on with the crazy fragmentation of the. Uh, the, the media industry generally but investigative journalism in particular investigative journalism budgets were being slashed and still are so I would argue that while we're surrounded by information um, everywhere uh, the quality of that information has declined massively and obviously we're now talking about fake news and such but um, um, the, I, I just saw so much change going on that it's even safer to stay away um, and I wanted to be a war photographer, foreign correspondent, um, diplomat. Had these sort of, um, yeah, had 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 all those ideas, um, but uh, yeah, didn't really uh, didn't really pursue them. Might do one day. Never never well, say never. It's never too late. There's always hope. I think a career is ten years these days, and I think you can have several careers throughout your life. I've got a friend, uh, Libby Delana, um, in America who changes career every decade. She's like, well, what am I going to be in this decade? Like, she's just got to, I think she's got to 60 and has changed career again. She, she's amazing. And, and I kind of like that, actually. I kind of like that kind of forced change. So um, I can see you on the train. I can see you as a chef playing with flavour. Um, and I'm going to leap forward to, um, well, I'm going to get you to leap forward to how did you get from chefing to saying there's a problem that I need to solve with drinks? So firstly, I would say, um, well, you know, I think a problem, a problem, yeah, I think there was a problem, still is a problem with soft drinks, actually. Um, you could look at it as an opportunity. Um, I was working at um, the last job I ever had, I got fired from, because I'm a terrible employee. Um, I worked for a brilliant, brilliant organization, lovely bunch of people called uh, Sustain, the Alliance of Better Food and Farming. They are a food sustainability campaigning organization yeah I know them yeah um, um, you were there uh, yeah I was a, I was a uh, that was my break so it was my career break uh, really uh, where I got this amazing opportunity I was working for a startup um, sushi a group of sushi restaurants yeah um, called Tsuru they now run the tonkotsu uh, noodle bars um, I saw I was working for them as a sort of not as a, I was doing a bit of front of house work and a little bit of business development for this restaurant group and um, saw this job come, job ad come through from Sustain. So I applied for it and got the interview and I was just going off to Secret Garden Party yeah. and had all my bags for Secret Garden Party and a suit on. <laughs> so it's a bit weird. Watching the like, hey guys, sorry, bags, got off to this festival. But the, the person that interviewed me, uh, Ben Reynolds, was quite keen on music festivals, so we immediately had something to talk about, which was quite yeah. useful. Um, but got that job and worked there for a couple of years um, uh, building this network of um, or working with this network of chefs caterers restaurateurs who are interested in food sustainability principles building workshops with them 
um, on stuff like Nursetel um, uh, butchery and working in meat reduction uh, messaging throughout that. So exploring things like the concent concentrated animal feeding operations yeah. uh, and just making people aware of how some of the supply chain works in some of the area of food and drink. So it's an amazing opportunity of having worked as a chef and in front of house as well, then being able to see a different perspective on the food and drink industry um, working with Sustain. Uh, it's a great place to work, but during the time that I was working there, a friend of mine, Steve Wilson, whose cousin had started this nightclub, Passing Clouds, in Dalston, yeah. um, had started, we started making these drinks uh, just for use on the club nights, and people were saying, oh, you should scale that up. Um, and Steve said he didn't really know what they meant. I was getting interested in business and interested in really looking, I was looking at the incredible uh, startup culture in the United States, yeah. and I thought like, all right, well, it's mechanically repeatable, which means it's scalable, so let's get on with it. And already, if you look at 10, 15 years ago, the food that was available in London, food and drink, it was nothing like it is today. We've had an explosion in quality of food and drink, partially led by, I'd say, by the recession, but brought up by the street food scene and by the craft beer scene. And by Craft spirits. Yeah, people bringing Absolutely. multiculturalism. People yeah. like London does multiculturalism better than any other city in the world. And we have become, I think as a result, one of the leading global cities in the world for food and drink. I, I'd say the leading city. Yeah, I would say, I would say London is the capital of food and, and drink. I, and, I, and I say that publicly as often as possible because... The UK has had a bad rap for food for a long, long time. And I was delighted. Yep. I was going to pick, pick up on it at some point. I was delighted when you talked about the food revolution that's happening in Scotland. It, it's astonishing. And there's still people out there that think it's all about deep fried Mars bars. And you can still buy them. But the world has come on. And Glasgow's food scene yep. is, is bristling with flavour, opportunity and love. That you don't see actually, you don't see in Edinburgh, but you see it in Glasgow, yep. um, and the, everything's got all better. over. Coffee, wine. You've got artisan roast in Edinburgh, was voted best cafe in the country. Really? You've got winemakers. You've got people pulling up potatoes and planting vines in Kent. Um, it's been it's been very exciting to be part of it and to yeah. see this change. Um, so when I was when we were looking at this sort of small project, we were doing kind of for fun, um, and really we we were asked to make the drinks because Passing Clouds didn't want to serve Coca-Cola products. Um, and I looked at it, I looked at it closer and thought, hmm, no one's really doing this in soft drinks yet. It's not been, I thought it, I thought it, the term is basically premiumizing it, but yeah. premium's just a term. Um, no one was putting that quality first approach into soft drinks. Um, so I thought, oh great, opportunity to be a first. I think there's, there is, um, it's useful to be to be a first in an area, um, and basically we um, we got a we did a little bit of a launch, got a little bit of press, and, and it was around the time of the Olympics. So there were lots of journalists in town who were at the twenty twelve Olympics. Lots lots of journalists in town, fairly bored about writing about athletics. And we had a little launch, and we ended up with this first um, this first one of our first bits of press was in El Mundo, which yeah. is a huge newspaper globally. And it was Dalston Cola versus Coca-Cola. We just thought, oh, this is quite fun, isn't it? Um, and so we just ran with it from there, really. That's brilliant. Um, People do want something to fight against, though, yeah. don't they? That's, yeah. It's not just as a business, but as consumers. We're very keen to align ourselves for or against something. And I guess having a very big incumbent, or two very big incumbents in the market, gives yep. you a really clear position. Yep. 
the whole the whole challenge. We hadn't heard the term challenge. We, we were two chefs working in Hackney. We hadn't really heard the term challenger brand. That's brilliant. And we really had no idea what we were doing. But we knew how to make something taste good. We knew how to do things properly in terms of you working with ingredients. So we yeah. just started there. And that's kind of stayed at the heart of the company, really. Just work with good ingredients, source carefully. So when we were on the train, we were taught to source the best ingredients. So the food in the train was best of best Scottish food and it was we'd, the train would stop at a platform the mushroom man would come out onto the platform with his bag he'd select the mushrooms at um, when the train got into near Sky at Carla Lockhouse the fishermen would come out and we'd, we'd get the kippers we'd get the langoustines and we'd select yeah. them there um, and work with them and yeah building Dawson's is, a lot of it has been about trying to source the best in, in this case fruit material so I spend a lot of time visiting fruit farms um, quite a lot in the UK, uh, but we also work with one in northeastern uh, Sicily, in Messina, which is lovely. Yeah, uh, very nice, very nice place. But yeah, I basically go and get to see a lot of fruit being grown and then processed, and that's the the three main things we look at are how it's grown, how it's processed, and how it's transported. Um, as if you're trying to do things properly, those are the three areas where it can go a bit wrong. Um, with transportation, you're trying to cut down food miles. You're trying to cut yeah. down the amount of fossil fuels that are used. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there's the whole there's packaging and packaging waste as well. Um, you got to worry about. But when it comes to processing, try and just use pressed fruit. I.e., it's been pressed. It might have had the water removed. It might have been uh, concentrated through evaporation, which again cuts down the amount of fossil fuel that it takes to transport there's it. A, there's a lot there's of a we big argument to using yeah, concentrates. There's a big campaign against fruit concentrate a while ago, um, but to my mind, it's sort of more responsible to use it. Um, and in terms of taste and quality, it's just about working with the right people. Yeah. Generally, the smaller or mid-sized suppliers who are able to be a bit more delicate with how they do the processing work. Um, but like, I've yeah, got various photos of me at um, processors with uh, packing presses. One of my favorites is this on my Instagram, which I don't really use that much. Um, but yeah, this is the best part of my job is days like this when I get to go and visit these. I mean, that that is the most beautiful food processing, uh, a fruit uh, juicing plant I've seen. It looks like Where is it's that? like a cathedral. That's in Graz in Austria. That's amazing. Um, so for the audience, is a, is a brilliant photograph. It, I mean, it is. It's a colossal space. It, it it doesn't. It looks like it's not built for pressing fruit because the amount of fruit going in there must be colossal. It's, yeah, it's hundreds of tons. Um, That's amazing. But I didn't. So I, I mean, I, I, I knew that you. I knew what you were anti. I get. I picked that up. Yeah. I didn't know that provenance was such a massive part of what you did. And I just checked on the can as you were talking about it. It's it's kind of there, real fruit, but it's not there as much as I can as I thought it might be actually. Do you what do you focus on when it comes to selling? The benefits of what you do. Where's your so, main message? I don't. I don't think. Like we're surrounded by products, right? One might say we're surrounded by too many products yeah. in our day-to-day -day lives, and we have so much time and so much concentration and focus. Do does everybody really want to know everything about everything that they use? I don't think so. I think they want to buy things from companies that they trust, <coughs> and they want to know that what they're buying is made well and is clean. Yeah, it tastes good. I think this idea of cleanliness is important for people, and that's something we're big on. We won't use artificial sweeteners. Um, um, yeah, I mean, we could work on provenance a bit more. I think we should tell the story a little bit more. I'm actually working on a project, um, sort of analysing our supply chain at the moment. It would be yeah. really nice to um, 
present maps of our supply chain. But also, I mean, I've seen some good stuff with blockchain recently where you're able to sort of scan the CAD and see exactly uh, where everything is. I think that's very important, especially uh, with um, meat and fish, where there can be, there's quite a lot of fraud in the meat and fish supply chains. So there is there are more issues there that you want to be careful of. Um, with what we do, do the customers care? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'd be curious to know. Um, yeah, we're not. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. We've only very recently uh, uh, fulfilled our kind of marketing function properly, as in we just hired somebody to do mark to, to work on marketing yeah. for us. Uh, Annie Morris, uh, who's built her own company uh, previously, has just joined us, so she's really just getting her feet under the table. Um, and I imagine it's something we want to do a bit more of. Um, I think so. I mean, I, you raise a good point. You know, um, how much do we need to know? How much have we got? How much space have we got in our brains to understand? the complexities of what you do. Uh, but I think there are some really clear shorthand sentences and measures that you can use to, 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 to bring people with you because you're right, they need re- they need, they're looking for the reassurance that you're not doing it wrong mm. m- more than anything. And I think, I think the marketing message just needs to be really clear, yeah. um, really simple. And looking at what a lot of other people do, um, they pick one thing, there's no sugar in it. And they work, and they just work that, and work that, and work that, and work that. Yours is more complex than that. You're doing everything right. Well, it's it's problematic, right? So when you look at things like your CSR policies, a lot of companies will pick one issue and they'll just flag that issue, and that's what I'll stand behind. Um, I have huge problems with this, and it's probably because I used to work in sustainability industry, and I'm kind of aware of a a lot of the problems. Um, I get it from a marketing perspective it's easier if you just have one thing it's like oh that's what you do fine so for us we are anti-plastic we don't use much plastic at all yeah. uh, we're in we're in cans we're in metal we're packed in metal and cardboard great um, so we could just choose that as a message but really if you know if you care about what you do you're aware of all the problems in your industry and I think there should be more responsibility to tackle the problems that you're aware of rather than divert attention from the problems that you're aware of with one easily consumable CSR issue. Yeah, I, no, I agree um, entirely. And actually, the whole kind of focus on plastic is really diversionary at the moment because it's, it's climate change is the single biggest challenge we face. I've got, a, I've got a good one for you. I don't know how, I don't know if this is yeah. probably not the sort of thing you should mention on the podcast, but something that really annoyed me I saw um, in the news recently was that um, uh, Virgin, the, the, the organisation Virgin, has just launched a cruise ship, I think, called the Scarlet Lady. Yeah. Uh, it's got diesel engines on it. I think it must go through somewhere between 120 and 250 tonnes of diesel fuel a day and the PM10 emissions from shit diesel ships and the, and the congregation of those around the shipping lanes are creating havoc absolutely havoc yeah. for the populations that live along those yeah. lanes yeah I mean it's I think it's inexcusable so on the one hand you have Richard Branson smashing a big plastic bottle symbolically being anti-plastic and the other hand the organization itself is is I I Personally, I, I, I would love to see some sort of justification for the company. Immediately, they point to um, some of the electric in the in the boat is generated off the off the um, the heat from the engines. That's what every modern every modern it's engineering normal. is is heat reclamation. Yeah, that's normal. Uh, being like yeah, like you're not going to let things go to waste. But the the way that di- like diesel is now f- it's really widely regarded as a real a real issue. 
Um, yeah. There's been a huge U-turn on diesel and diesel usage is falling. I think we should all probably work to try and reduce our diesel emissions. But right. nobody's perfect. I mean, we ran our own vehicle in London for uh, two, three years of our, of, in our early years. It was a diesel van. Yeah. We wanted to use an electric van, but we couldn't afford one. You can, yeah. get, a di- you can get a two and a half grand, you can get a, 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 a diesel white van. Yeah. It costs about 30,000 to get and, an electric. And again, what are we measuring? Are we wanting low, low carbon emissions? Diesels win, mm. or low pollution, yep. diesels lose. Yep. So we, 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 we've all been led down the diesel route because we're looking at CO2. Yep. And CO2 is the right thing to look at, but it's not the only thing to look at. It's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So you've got this amazing business, you've got this incredible brand, you've got quite a lot of love. Um, where'd you go from here? Mm. Well, we've just start, launched our light range. Um, uh, so that's been on the market uh, six weeks. So this is no added sugar. Uh, it's got about 20 calories per can. That's what I'm drinking uh, now. That is what you're drinking now, the rhubarb. It's so amazing. We tried making zero calorie drinks uh, because everybody is uh, keen to reduce calories and reduce sugar, uh, particularly added sugar. Um, but we just couldn't get the flavor that we wanted as we are sort of taste first, um, taste first company. Um, so yeah, it, this uses 20 calories worth of apple juice um, and that allows the body and the sweetness that you can then kind of create this like matrix of flavor and come out with a drink that tastes nice, which I think is it, more important. It doesn't taste thin. It so doesn't taste too thin. Some of um, those drinks taste very thin. Yeah. Um, so we just launched these. I'm very excited about them because uh, we don't really know how they're going to do on the market yet. And what I'd really like to do, the next thing I'd like to do, uh, other than the, sort of the, the general operations, is um, develop more of these, uh, as I think this could be, uh, this could be the future for us. Yeah. Um, is, uh, is is developing more of the lights, really. Um, but I mean, we're we're just generally excited for the year. Um, we, we, we grew quite well in 2018, and we've got a lot of exciting opportunities lined up already. Um, so we are we're we're working at a, at a at a frantic pace at the moment just to keep keep up, um, which is yeah. So it's, it's exciting times for us, really. Um, how, how do you um, how do you steer this? You're not a ship. You're a speedboat, still, aren't you? nice and small and you move really how do you steer it how do you attract the best talent in the world how do you get your message out to the people that don't know it because the people that know you only drink drink you you know i get that completely but my mum and dad don't know you why, why, why would they how do you how do you amplify what you do that's a very good question um i used to think that in this space if you're successful to a certain point it becomes a good old-fashioned advertising war so you have to start spending more and more on marketing, more and more on advertising. We would always rather spend money on the liquid that people are drinking, um, as I think in the modern environment where social media commands such an impact and such an effect and is, to a certain extent, less controllable than traditional advertising, there's more weight placed on product quality. So to a certain extent, the industry and the environment is now keeping businesses like ours honest, and it's causing or accelerating the rise of quality in food and drinks businesses. So if you look at the people coming out now, it's all challenger brands. They're driving all of the the good change. And mainly the ones that I see succeeding are spending more on the liquid, more on the the ingredients and just doing things the right way. So it's an exciting time to be in the industry just because the dynamics are keeping people honest. That's brilliant. That's interesting. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. It's no longer true, is it? I hope so. Don't let the story get in the way of the good of a good truth. Yeah. Really fascinating. And um, 
What about you? Where, where, where are you going to go? Oh, good question. Because um, I still feel... I, I've still got this image of this person that wants to go off and be a war correspondent and to dig into the truth that's happening elsewhere and bring that back. I, I still feel that in you. And this is great, but there's something else, isn't there? There's, there's, a, there's a big part of me that... Um, uh, uh, that yeah, that, that looks at what I'm going to do next. Uh, I've been planning what I'm going to do next since before I started this business. Yeah, that's the, that's the truth. I, I have got a plan for something in the future. Um, and this is uh, Dolson's, building Dolson's has given me so much more opportunity to effectively pursue those plans. Um, I can see that just from the network that we've built, uh, the people that, we're, that we sort of meet along the way. Um, so, yes, I would like to do something else one day, um, but that might not be for a while. Um, and, I mean, Dawson's is going to need a few more years of um, sort of steering. At the same time, we have a fantastic team, and I think one of the main strengths of, the, of, our, of our small business is that we've got brilliant, brilliant people working here. Yeah. Uh, we've attracted amazing talent. We've, I'd say we've got some of the best people as shareholders and some of the best people um, uh, as operators um, in, in, uh, in our game. Um, and there's always, there's a sort of snowball effect there. It's so once you have one, you know, it's easier to get the next. Of course. You know, yeah, they, want, they want to work together, yeah. they want to work with each other. And, and, and you really are a magnet brand. You, know, you really are one of those brands that people hold up as um, doing really well and taking the fight on. But they don't see the last six years. <laughs> of course they don't. Well, they can only see where you are now, mm. and they can and they and they can they can extrapolate to the future. But they don't know the days that you didn't pay the rent. They don't know when you had to borrow money off your folks. They don't. Not that you did. I'm guessing. Mm. Um, they don't know those things, um, and they don't know how hard it's been. All they see is you've got something on the market. You must be doing well. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. I think we are still very small. Yeah. Uh, we've got a long way to go. Um, the soft drinks industry is very very large. Um, and there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of drinks that could be better. So I think there's definitely a lot more shelf space that we can go into, hopefully. Um, are you listing any major supermarkets? Uh, we are in uh, Sainsbury's, yeah. uh, and we're in Waitrose. Um, yep. And are they are they does that scale versus profitability cause you a headache, or is it is it a good place to be? There are efficiencies in terms of deliveries. So instead of delivering lots of small small quantities to small areas, with the supermarkets you're able to de deliver in one go yeah. uh, to one site. Um, so so you, so actually commercially it, it works out. Um, okay. And it's certainly exciting just because of the volume. It allows us to uh, increase the volume of uh, uh, that we're buying from our suppliers from say our, you know the amount of cherry juice we contracted for this year is that much better bigger so we get a slightly better price so sure. um, we're starting to see some of those um, efficiencies come through which is exciting because that is the name of the game in in soft drinks you have to be at scale you know we we won't be able to even start relaxing until we're five ten times bigger than we are now really okay that's interesting and so just to, and to finish off because um about 35 minutes so far but it's been absolutely fascinating how is that the right it's the wrong question no it's the right question how can you create the conditions for other similar companies and I don't necessarily mean in soft drinks I mean startups in the food industry companies that are changing 
provenance that are, that are fighting the incumbent. How can you help those grow? Well, we've actually been working with, um, with some of our competitors recently. Um, so it's something that we're, all, we're already involved in. I think generally um, you want to be part of a wave. If you're, if you're out there on your own uh, and you don't have any com- competition, it's a bit of a bit of an issue, um, and you can work with your competitors to uh, increase the visibility of your new emerging area of the market, and then you can get the larger buyers, and the larger customers, to take note. Whereas individually, your voice might be lost. So we have recently started working with some of our competitors just to uh, just to sort of shout louder, like the sort of um, uh, young chicks in a nest um, yeah. uh, to try and get attention from some of these larger buyers and it does seem to be working people are paying attention so this area of sort of craft soft drinks that we're in um, it, it there is a bit of a there's a bit of a wave um, and much like in craft beer uh, there's a good sense of community amongst brewers who will often work together share yeah. knowledge equipment um, we, we are seeing a little bit of that in what we do uh, which is great because previously uh, some of the larger soft drink companies have had this kind of culture of secrecy, uh, and I think that's that's had an impact on on other businesses in the area not being so so willing to work of together. Course. Yeah, of course, um, and can you um, can you see? And we may have discussed this the last time we met, but my friend runs a company called Beer Bods, um, which I'm certain you're aware of, <coughs> and it's incredibly successful. People love it. And it's that, that beer discovery, a subscription, um, it is fab. Can you see the same thing with soft drinks? Could you see a soft drinks discovery? Not necessarily, well, there's two things here. I mean, subscription businesses are really interesting models, number one. Number two, so, so you could subscribe to how many different drinks do you have in your uh, We have nine flavors now. So, so I, you, you, I could get a pack of 12 every single month or something, and that would work. You see that straight away. Do you do that? Uh, we don't currently, but we are just about to start selling uh, online. Uh, so we we are soon to find out. And then, clubbing up, clubbing together with the others, because everyone gets lifted by the rising tide. Do you think there's some kind of discovery software discovery company you could you could be setting up there? Unsure. So we're about to. Um, we're, we're. I think we're available with um, uh, the big bad Amazon uh, now. Um, uh, I say big bad. They're, um, they're just a, a, a major force, obviously, now. Um, so we'll see what happens there. In terms of setting up a subscription model, I don't know, because people don't drink soft drinks in the same way they drink alcohol. People happily sit down and go through four or five beers in an evening, whereas they're not going to do that with lemonade or cherry aid. So because of that, our distribution has to be four or five times larger to be at the same kind of scale as... Um, uh, as a brewer, um, so the dynamics are a little a little different. Um, right now, we're we're really looking to work with more um, food service groups. So some of the cafes, uh, some of the cafe groups, some of the mm-hmm. restaurant groups, um, more bar groups, um, and just keep supporting our independent customers. Really, which is where we where we started and where we came from. Um, B to C business to consumer in the food and drinks game is an area of huge interest at the moment. And it's always a it's always a challenge when you have a relatively low value, high weight product yeah. uh, which won't fit, fit through a letterbox. How do you get that directly into people's houses? Um, yeah, it's um, it's sort of a, an interesting space to watch at the moment, especially with the emergence of things like Amazon Fresh in the United States um, and the success of businesses like Tails. 
um, uh, in, in the UK. Um, so, yeah, unsure. It would, um, I think first thing we want to work on is more recognition for craft soft drinks. So just make people aware that there are better choices. Um, and then we'll look at uh, we'll look at novel ways of, di of distribution probably further down the line once we're a wee bit bigger. It's brilliant. Your product's great. I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, I love your story. I love I love from living on, on the land to techno in Berlin to a train to not knowing quite what you, to do. You didn't ask me about the year in the Caribbean either. That's oh, <laughs> that's the next time. Duncan, it's been, it's been absolutely lovely. Thank you so much for your time. No, pleasure to meet you. Appreciate it. I really appreciate it. So the first thing you're going to do is go and order some um, cherry aid, I'm guessing. Um, it was a really lovely conversation. Again, I said it at, at the beginning, the thing that, that really fires me up or gets me interested is what makes the person kind of do this in the first place. And that whole kind of play, playing around with flavour and and the kind of provenance that runs through um, runs through Duncan's background is absolutely fascinating. And it's no surprise to me that he ended up doing what he's doing. Uh, and I'm certain we'll, um, we'll, we'll succeed really well in this. Um, so thank you for listening. If you've got any suggestions for people I should talk to, please uh, let me know. We've got, I think, three more lined up at the moment. Um, uh, maybe even four, actually. So um, they will come out over the next few months. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening. And I hope you have a great day.